Uh, good morning, everyone. Good morning. You all hear me okay? Yes. Uh, it's good to see you. So I think this is the final week of the series we've been looking at. So it's uh, Be Disciples, uh, Make Disciples. So over the last few weeks, we've been looking closely at what we can do uh, to follow the command of Christ to go out and make disciples. Uh, Mark and TJ have discussed various topics. So I think a few weeks back, we looked at the power of unity and how it's really important to have solidarity and, and togetherness. Uh, you know, to have that, that support and encouragement with each other as we have our own personal walk with Christ. And that coming together is so important. Uh, Mark had talked about the power to witness by cultivating the Holy Spirit. And again, that's something Pauline's alluded to there, is that, you know, on our own strength, it's very, very uh, difficult to witness to people. We need to rely on the Spirit to do that. But also for the Spirit to be at work in that person's heart as well. You know, it's not all our job. Uh, last week, TJ, TJ talked about uh, the need to be sacrificial, you know, really to be a slave to everyone, to win people's hearts and, and win their minds. And as he said, I think uh, the idea of hospitality is an actual extension of that. You know, uh, so today's uh, title, the title of the sermon today is The Power of Hospitality. Uh, well, you can see that. Um, and yeah, I have to confess, when Mark asked me to speak about hospitality, my first reaction was, what on earth will you speak about for 30 minutes to do with that? I mean, I really thought, <laughs> hospitality. And I think the problem is, is that when I hear that word, it conjures up images of like a social event or a function, you know, where people are given drinks or they're given something to eat. And I didn't really think much more of that word. Uh, so I teach for a living, and one of the great things about teaching is, is that you learn a lot. So I've learned a lot putting this together. In fact, uh, the saying goes is that, you know, you teach best what you most need to learn. So if this sermon's any good, it's just an indicator of how far I've got to go. <laughs> uh, so so the, the, the translation from ancient Greek for hospitality is composed of two words. This is the first thing I learned. Uh, so they'll show up on the screen. So the first word is uh, phago, which basically means uh, brotherly love. That's what it's loosely translated to. Uh, so... Uh, a hat tip to our American friends, that's why Philadelphia is known as the city of brotherly love. It's taken from ancient Greek. Uh, the second word is uh, xenos, or xenos, and that, that's roughly translated as strangers. Uh, and again, in our current language, when you hear the terms uh, xenophobic, you know, fear of strangers, fear of immigrants, that's where they're getting it from. So when you put these two words together, so like xenos, it means uh, love of strangers. So that's what the biblical message of hospitality is. It's far deeper, far more profound than, than how we currently understand it. It's about loving people wholeheartedly, loving them as strangers, having that deep affection. So it would probably be more accurate to call this morning's sermon the power of loving strangers. I think that really captures it much better. Uh, so to do that, we're looking at the passage. It's Luke 14, and it's verses 12 to 14. So it's a short passage, but... Before we do that, I think it's uh, important to give some context for chapter 14 in its entirety. So what's basically happened uh, preceding the passage is that uh, the local uh, yeah, an influential Pharisee has invited Jesus for dinner, and it's the Sabbath. Uh, and it's not an act of friendship, it's not an act of kindness. They've brought him along with the hope that they'll, they'll catch him out in some way. What they do is they, they bring a sick man... They say his body's swollen, and they're pretty confident that Jesus will heal this guy, and he'll do it on the Sabbath, and in doing that, he'll have breached the law, 
and then they'll be in a position to condemn him. And the reason they want to do that is, is they're really worried about the claims that he's making, they're worried about the miracles he's performing. So they're desperate to try and catch him out in some way and, and be in a position to condemn him. So again, even the fact that this guy's been brought, brought uh, along as well, you know, the guy with the disease, it's not an act of friendship, it's not an act of kindness in their part. Uh, what they're really trying to do is use him as a prop. You know, he's just there, his furniture in the room, he's just something they can use to try and condemn Jesus. Uh, so Jesus does as they expect, he heals this guy, but he's fully aware of what's going on, you know, he's, he's cottoned on to the ploy, and he uses the situation to seize the agenda from them. Uh, so what he actually says is, once he heals the guy, he says, uh, he says to him, which of you, those whose son or ox falls into a well will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? So he's basically just putting it to them. You know, if you've got something you were uh, in love with, something that was precious to you, you were about to lose it, or there was going to be some sort of negative outcome, which of you wouldn't heal him or resolve that situation, regardless of whether it's the Sabbath? Uh, and they're left speechless. They don't really know how to respond to that. So what Jesus does is sees their agenda from them, and he turns the tables, and then he has his own agenda. And what he goes on to do is to try and teach them about the need for humility and about the need for altruism. So as I say, I teach, and uh, one of the things I do in class is that uh, I try and be specific when common terms come up. Try and be very specific about what it is they mean. Uh, so I looked up what is humility, what is Jesus trying to teach? So the Cambridge Dictionary describes it as a feeling or attitude that you've got no special importance that makes you better than others. And it's fundamentally about a lack of pride. So how does he do that? Well, he makes some he comments on how he's watched the Pharisees take the best seats for themselves as they sat down for dinner. So he says to them, when you're invited by someone to a wedding banquet, don't recline at the best place because a more distinguished person than you may have been invited by your host. The one who invited both of you may come and say to you, give, the, give your place to this man, and then in humiliation you will proceed to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and recline at the lowest place, so that when the one who invited you comes, he will say to you, friend, move up higher. You will then be honoured in the presence of all the other guests. And this is the key part of it, he says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So it's very, very clear that Jesus is attempting to teach them about the dangers and the pitfalls of excessive pride. You know, that you're doomed to disaster if you hold such a lofty appraisal of your own worth. He then goes on to talk about altruism. And again, the Collins English Dictionary defines that as unselfish concern for other people's happiness and welfare. So in, the, in an effort to teach about altruism, this is the key passage, this is what Jesus uh, says. So what does he say? He says, he also said to the one who invited him, when you give a lunch or a dinner, don't invite your friend, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbours, because they might invite you back and you would be repaid. On the contrary, when you host a banquet, invite those who are poor, maimed, lame or blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. 
So that's the passage. So what I've tried to do is break it down into three component parts. So verse 12, uh, I'll try and talk about, well, what is the problem? What really drives the need for us to be repaid? Why is it within our cultural context that we struggle to do that? We struggle to give without reward. So I'll try and break that down a wee bit. Verse 13 is very much about, well, how does Jesus solve that issue for us? You know, what is it he does that helps us to, to give without reward? How does he instruct us to love others? And then verse 14, you know, in light of that, then what should we do in our everyday lives? You know, based on Jesus' instruction. So that's what I'm going to do is, you know, what is the problem? What is the solution? And then how we should take that into our lives. So what is the problem? So just to repeat verse 12. When you give a lunch or dinner, don't invite your friend, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbours because they may invite you back and you would be repaid. So a few weeks back, Mark talked about the need for unity and there's good reason for it. We exist in a society that there seems lots of disagreement, conflict, there's lots of discord, you know, it's fragmented, polarised. Uh, and one of the main reasons I think that exists is about the impact of individualism in our culture. So I came across a research paper, I'll probably uh, butcher these, these guys' names, but uh, I came across this paper, it was written by uh, two researchers, who and Triandus, and what they attempted to do was uh, define the characteristics of an individualistic society and how those influences, how do they shape our behaviour, our thinking, how do they shape our attitudes? So one of the points, I'm sorry, these are a bit, uh, let's back a bit. Uh, one of the, the characteristics they, they say is that, you know, individualists are loosely linked to individuals who view themselves as independent of collectives. Their self is defined in all, almost entirely individual terms. So it's a fancy way of saying that, in general, people only value uh, or have responsibility for those closest to them. We exist in a society where strangers are not important. You know, we don't generally concern ourselves with the welfare of strangers. Uh, and that's actually enforced in everyday language. You know, keep yourself to yourself, mind your own business. It's reinforced through terms like that. So at a heart level, there's not much love uh, for strangers in our society. Uh, we see ourselves as very separate from the whole. It's an every person for themselves, dog-eat-dog world. Uh, it's a world of self-importance. It's a world of pride. Um, you know, and there's been massive consequences as a result of that. Uh, there's a, an environmentalist, Bill McKibben, and he talks about the demise of community in the Western world. And he's a strong advocate that we should be trying to restore community. So one of the things he says, uh, it's quite a lengthy quote, so I'll just summarise it, but he says, In the harassing days of the final economic booms, everyone in your cul-de-sac could have died overnight from some mysterious plague. And while you might have been sad about this, you wouldn't be inconvenienced. Our economy, unlike any that's came before it, is designed to work without the input of your neighbours. Born in cheap oil, our food arrives as by magic from great distance. If you've got a credit card or internet connection, you can order most of what you need and have it left anonymously at your door. We've evolved a neighbourless lifestyle. He goes on to say, we therefore need to make, uh, make sure that community will become 
on this tougher planet, one of the most prosaic terms in a lexicon, like whole bicycle or computer. He says that access to endless amounts of energy has made us rich, it's wrecked our climate, but it's also made us the first people on Earth who have got no practical need for neighbours. And I think that's true. I was speaking to a guy on Friday and we kind of came up with the idea that you could actually live your whole life without leaving the house now. You know, you could have no human contact and you could survive. If you've got an internet connection and you've got money, there's no actual need for you to talk to anyone. Uh, so Bill McCibbon, you know, feels that you know, our community is uh, yeah, it's dying. Our sense of community has been dying for a long time now. So it's very clearly in the way our culture is evolving that sense of community is massively hindered. Our connection with other people is massively hindered. Uh, and there's a lot of people in our society that, that are very isolated uh, and they don't have much nourishment from authentic relationships. However, you know, I think as a church, one thing we do really well is community. And that's one of the core strengths of the church. You know, it's very, very attractive to people. And when we come to look at what we can do later on, I'll, I'll come back to that. Uh, one of the other characteristics of the individualistic society is that we're primarily motivated by our own preferences, needs and rights and the contracts we establish with other people. So what that basically means then is that we don't generally look beyond our own needs, our own entitlements and our own rights. You know, our goals and aspirations are very much designed to benefit ourselves and it's often at the expense of other people. You know, uh, that sense of I becomes the central feature of our life. You know, I need, I want, I choose, I demand. These are all precepts of the individualistic society. You know, uh, at me, mine and uh, I are the pronouns in a modern age. Uh, so there's very little room for we, us or ours in our culture. Uh, but there's a massive problem with that. You know, we, we are intensely social creatures. We crave relationships, we crave community. It's hardwired inside us. And when we don't have it, it's massively damaging. So we know it's hardwired in us because God told us so. It's always been part of the plan that we would be one people. So when we go to the Bible, that, that idea is uh, emphasised throughout it. So there's some key passages. So it says, Then the Lord said, It is not good for man to be alone. Genesis 2.18 Instruct him to do what is good to be rich in good works, to be generous and willing to share. That's 1 Timothy 6.18. Indeed, the body is not one part, but many. 1 Corinthians 12.14. Share with the saints in their needs. Pursue hospitality. Pursue love of strangers. That's Romans 12.13. And that's just a small sample. Uh, the author and theologian, Tim Chester, he says, We're communal creatures made to be lovers of God and of other people. It's embedded in us. One of the things that the Scottish Government is doing at the minute is uh, they're pushing this idea of what they're calling trauma-informed practice. And what it is is a recognition that people who have experienced real adverse events, events in their life really struggle in relationships. These are people who are more likely to have addiction, poor mental health, be unemployed. And what, what science is slowly realising is, is when you offer people genuine authentic connection it heals them it actually heals their brain their brain chemistry changes uh, so the science has caught up to the bible you know the bible beat them to it it was talking about it a long time ago you know and that's how we're built we're built to be together 
and when we don't have it, we start to shrivel. So it's very, very clear, you know, we are not created for an individualistic society. We're not meant to be on our own. It's just not the way we were designed. So the final characteristic is that they say individualistic individuals emphasise what they call rational analysis of the advantages and disadvantages of associating with others. So what, what they're suggesting is, is that we've got into a position where we reduce relationships to functional mechanical arrangements in which we make some conscious decision about whether it's worth spending time with someone. You know, what is in it for me if I spend time with you? Uh, so we treat people as commodities. You know, we make some sort of value judgment on whether it's worth knowing them and spending time with them. So their relationships are our head and not our heart and they're devoid of any authentic love. They really are. Uh, and it's very subtle. I'm not saying we walk about in a robotic way analysing whether we should spend time with somebody. It's far more subtle than that. And I'll give you an example. There's lots of things I've done in my life that would be considered altruistic. I've spent time with people who have been really struggling with really serious uh, issues. Uh, you know, and there's part of me that's wanted to be in amongst that with them. But see, if I've been honest, there's been another part, another part that wants a payment. And it's not financial. What I was wanting out, it was an identity. There goes Jason, the good guy. Oh, Jason's brand new, he'll fix it. You know, so there was something in it for me. It wasn't wholehearted, it wasn't pure. And do you know how I know that? Quite often, these interactions with people, I was anxious. I was anxious I couldn't help them. I was anxious it would look bad in me in some way, reflecting me poorly. Uh, so again, you know, it really spoke to my kind of sinful inclination towards self-centeredness. That was in there and amongst the parts that I wanted to be good and I wanted to be helpful. Uh, so I would ask you, you know, when you're in, when you are helping folk, what really underpins those relationships? You know, is there something at work where it's not just about that person? You know, do you get a hidden agenda, just like the Pharisees? Is there a hidden agenda in it? Uh, and I think if you look, you might find one, you know. Uh, Tim Chester says that people often speak words of love without them being heartfelt or evidenced by any action. He refers to this as fake love, the love of the air kiss, the love of the talk show host. You know, it's a false love. Uh, it's often what you see in social media now, where, you know, some tragic event strikes and immediately people are changing their profile picture on Twitter or on Facebook. Uh, you know, they wanted to be they want to be associated with it. And it's not because they genuinely care, it's just a platform to showcase love. Um, you know, they want to be associated with a particular person or situation. Because uh, it just reinforces their identity as being good and caring. But there's absolutely no cost to them. They're not in the middle of it. You know, it's just easy. Paul strongly discourages us from this approach. You know, he says that. Let love be without hypocrisy. Detest evil, cling to what is good. Love one another deeply as brothers and sisters. Outdo one another in showing honour. So it's very clear for that as Christians, you know, our, our uh, love for others should be authentic. You know, it should be genuine and it should never be based on whether or not there's something in it for us, whether there's some advantage or merit in, show, uh, in spending time with someone. You know, that's the kind of love that unfortunately seems pretty endemic in society now. That's the common way people interact with each other. 
So just to uh, recap the three things then that, that define individualistic societies, we see ourselves as individuals separate from the whole, our primary motivated is shaped by our needs, our rights, our choices and our preferences, and we only associate with people who benefit us in some way or other. So it's dead easy to see then how these aspects of individualism just speak into the sinful inclination towards self-centeredness. You know, we're shaped and moulded in some ways to be like that. You know, our culture is very much a, a reflection of our collective flaws and rebellion. We're not only separated from God, but we're separated from each other. So then what do we do then? You know, how does Jesus solve this for us? That's part two. And that brings us to the second part of the passage. It says, On the contrary, when you host a banquet, invite those who are poor, maimed, lame or blind. Now that, that, that uh, doesn't seem a particularly remarkable thing, is to spend time with people who are poor or who have health problems or disability. Most people would see that as decent and reasonable. But it's really easy to lose uh, track here how radical that was back in the times of Jesus. And the, the reason it was radical was is because if you were poor and had a disability in Jewish society at that time, it was conflated with sinful behaviour. It was a heavy stigma. It was a really powerful label to be poor or disabled back in the time of Jesus. Uh, so if you were using a rational analysis about advantages and disadvantages to associate with these people, you would quickly realise there was no advantage to you. You were likely to be judged harshly and incur social sanctions. So the fact that Jesus done that was radical. It was absolutely radical. You should never lose sight of that. Uh, you know, we learn in Luke 4, 18, verses 18 19, that these are in fact why Jesus is, these people are the fact that Jesus came. You know, he says, the spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to pr proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. This is why he came. It was radical. Uh, and it's no wonder the Pharisees were so unsettled by him. They would have been, what is going on? Uh, so he demonstrates and he shows a radical love for other people. It defied the social conventions of the time. And in doing that, it was the ultimate source of hospitality. That was the greatest love for strangers. You know, he welcomed everybody without exception. He didn't care. So it's incumbent on us as Christians then is to try and follow that path. That is, and I'm not saying that's easy, but he's asking us to humble ourselves and to show generosity for the most vulnerable people in our communities, even if you incur judgment, even if you face criticism for doing that, because that's what he done. So I'm not saying uh, that you should run out today and round up a group of people and bring them to your house and and show love, you know, you have to show wisdom and you have to show good judgement in that regard. But you can't lose sight of the fact either that radical love is the cornerstone of hospitality. You know, it's what draws people to faith. If you show people that level of acceptance, that level of love, how powerful is that? How powerful is that? So we live in Glasgow, and unfortunately there's not, we're not short of people who would fit that uh, description of being poor, and disabled, you know. Uh, so in Glasgow, <clears throat> sorry, in Scotland, there's roughly just over a million people seem to be in poverty. 
And poverty is always often associated with poor health and disability. So yeah, the Scottish government, that's about 20% of people. Uh, in Glasgow alone, about one third of children live in poverty. And even within Deniston, I looked up the Deniston neighbourhood profile, 40% of children in Deniston are deemed to be living in poverty, which surprised me, to be honest, because I look at it as very middle class, very gentrified. Uh, so there's hidden poverty even in this local area. Uh, Glasgow is unique in Europe as well. You know, the life expectancy in some parts of our cities lower in places where there's war or massive social upheaval. You know, it's not uncommon for people to die in their early 50s. Uh, even when they compare Glasgow to similar cities, so if you look at Manchester and Liverpool, there's similar rates of poverty, they've got similar uh, industrial heritage. People die much younger in Glasgow. And it's mystified researchers for a long time. Uh, but I've, I came across something that it made some effort to explain it. So it's Glasgow Public Health. And they were saying that after World War II, Glasgow was in deep trouble. There was massive housing problems. The health of the city was in massive decline. Uh, there was massive economic problems. And what the government did is they decided to write the city off. They seen it as a lost cause. They thought Glasgow's done. We can't fix it. And what they did is they diverted all the money out of the city. They built the new towns. They built East Kilbride. They built Cumbernauld and places like it. They took all the skilled workers out of Glasgow, folk who uh, were economically active, and they moved them out there. And they left the city in massive decline. Uh, so with a slide, uh, and it talks about the consequences. So the Scottish office in 1971 said, Glasgow is in a socially and economically dangerous position. The position is becoming worse because although the rate of population reduction is acceptable, the manner of it is destined within a decade or so to produce a seriously unbalanced population with a very high proportion of the old, the very poor and almost unemployable. So they were predicting by the 1980s that would be the, the bulk of the citizenship of Glasgow. And that's what happened. I was there. I grew up in the 80s. I grew up in an area where there was massive drug abuse, there was high unemployment, there was people, it was a graveyard of aspiration, a real graveyard of hope, uh, and that's what's caused the problems, and these are legacy issues that still continue. So earlier I said the loss of community in the West has been massively damaging. In Glasgow it's been catastrophic, and that's no exaggeration to say. It's been catastrophic for the most poor and vulnerable in our city. As I said earlier, you know, uh, uh, we have got the capacity to offer people a sense of connection and a sense of belonging. It's in the DNA of our faith to offer sanctuary and hope to people who need it. And there's a whole host of folk out there who we can definitely be connecting with. Uh, yeah, so our city is awash with people who need a community, who need a connection and need a love. And Jesus has asked us to reach out to these people. So what can we do? So it brings us to the last part. And it says, You will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. So we're not politicians, you know, we can't hope to solve all these problems. But one, two things that we can offer are people community, and we can offer them hope. Margaret said to me in a community, eh, hope is the fire that fuels people's effort in life. Hope gives people motivation and drive 
it gives them a sense of purpose to keep going. And we're able to offer that in spades. How, how great is that? Because there's poor people out there who desperately need it. Desperately need it. You know, Jesus, first and foremost, he offered people a sense of belonging. You know, he came here for the rejected. He came for the vulnerable. He came for the lost and the broken. Yeah, you know, Jesus offered grace. He's offered forgiveness and he's, he's offered love for all. You know, he didn't see himself as separate for the whole. He wasn't concerned with his own needs, his own rights or his own interests. And he certainly didn't only associate with people who offered them merit or advantage. He pushed back against our cultural norms. And that's what we have to try and do. On the contrary, you know, he knew being associated with the oppressed and the marginalised, he knew it was going to be at great cost to him. And how do we know? Because he told us. He says, it is necessary that the Son of Man suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and scribes, be killed and raised in the third day. He knew. So that, to me, was and remains the ultimate act for loving strangers. You know, through that sacrifice, we've been welcomed, we won't arms into the kingdom of God. We've been reconciled with God through his hospitality. Some paralleled. You know, so Jesus hasn't asked us to hang in a cross like him. He's not asked us to do that. But he's asked us to take it up. Or to take up the cross. You know, or to humble ourselves and try and show altruism for people who most need it. That's at the heart of his teaching. That's what he's asked us to do. You know, we should love and care for our neighbours out of love. So like him, we need to be prepared to make some sacrifices. His exact instructions in Luke 9.22 is, If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. So how might we take up the cross? So I've tried to be practical. Uh, TJ, Paul and Mark and I meet once a week. We do this cross and study group. Uh, so it's a, a, a study group uh, yeah, it's been written by Tim Chester. So we were doing a unit really, uh, recently where they talked about areas of life where we could be sacrificial. So I've, I've, I've stolen them from that. It's a bit of plagiarism, but I'm giving them credit, Tim Chester. Uh, so as I put them up, I want you to think about, you know, which of these areas are you, are you strong? You'll have strengths. There'll be things you're doing that are really good, but there'll probably be areas where you could be doing more. You know, and I know that's true for me. So where could you improve? That's a crucial question to ask. So one of the things, uh, where you could, one of the areas you could be sacrificial and show hospitality relates to time. It's just simply your time. So time's a valued commodity. <laughs> uh, you know, because you're a hustle and bustle of life, you can feel it. There's a real poverty in your time. But there's just no enough of it to get around. Uh, and as a consequence, we guard our time. We're very cautious about who we give our time to, particularly strangers. We're not inclined to do it. Uh, so it's definitely an area where you could be sacrificial. So our question is, how much of your time do you give to people out with your immediate circle? Maybe some, maybe none. But it's definitely an area where we can take up the cross. The second area uh, is affection. So it's a common feature of relationships that we 
sorry, gravitate towards people who we like or with whom we share interests. And it's dead easy then to give affection to people like that. You know, the glue that binds those relationships is often shared interests. It might be employment. Uh, it might just be hobbies like football. It might be things to do with your identity. It might be your class. It might be your race. That's often who we gravitate to, people who are like us, who we like and who like us. If I'm being honest, and I'm very, uh, I'm not very generous with my affection. I'm just not. I'm very guarded, and I'm very particular about who I let into my world. I can be quite shut down. I can be really, I can really struggle to be relational with people who I think don't like me, or who I feel tension off of. I just shut down. Uh, or who people who have different values or attitudes for myself, I can immediately just write them off. Not what I know. So I'm stingy with my love, stingy, tight. Uh, you know, and I only tend to give it to people who who are sense like me or who who are similar to me in some way. So it's a limit, and it's a limited form of love, and it's at odds with what Jesus has taught. You know, in Luke six thirty four, he says. And if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. You know, so it means nothing. So, you know, the offering of affection is therefore critical to hospitality, but offering it to people who are different or who you might not normally spend time with is even more important. Uh, and it's an area that I can be doing better, and, and maybe you. So the other area we can take up the cross is just about our home. You know, so home is where the heart is, and like our time, like our affections, we can be selective about who we welcome into our, our house. I could definitely be more welcoming others, I don't know about you, but, uh, you know, I spend a lot of time in my house, on my own, and partly I tell myself I need to recharge, I need to block the world out, and to some uh, extent that's true, but a lot of the time I'm just avoiding people, and in doing so it's just overlapping not sharing my time and not sharing my affection. Uh, I think part of the problem is, is in, our, in our society we see home as a type of sanctuary. It's a way to just escape the world. Uh, but Paul tells us a real sanctuary is the spirit of the Lord. He says, don't you know that you are God's sanctuary and that the spirit of God lives in you? So I think, you know, a lesson for me, maybe a lesson for you is, that, you know, is to come to that realisation that a real sanctuary stems from God. It isn't in my house. You know, and I don't need to cling to it so tightly. You know, if that's a fact that I realise. So I can use, your home can be used as a blessing to other people. You know, certainly folk who are strangers to us, you know, we can use it as a, as a way of uh, conveying God's grace and his love and his acceptance. So the last thing we can do, and it's just quite simply, don't put showing up there or no, but uh, resources. Big and small. You know, in the last few weeks, just coming to the church, I've heard people give out rooms and their flat to people, which is a pretty major form of sharing resources, I would say. You know, but TJ gave me a lawnmower, which I'm not diminishing, but maybe isn't quite in the same level. <laughs> but, uh, but we can share our resources, you know, small and big, just giving somebody a lift. Uh, you know, it doesn't need to be that, that big in scale, but it's important. Uh, and such, you know, and it's important because it points towards a gospel-centred community, and it mirrors the early church. That's what the early church did. They didn't cling to their possessions; they shared them. You know, they were seen as uh, 
it was very much a society that was part of the whole. Uh, so do you cling to your possessions? Is your identity rooted in these things? Or are they rooted in Christ? That's the question I'm asking myself. And it's something to think about. So these are different areas where you could show hospitality. And I think our, our willingness to do so, you know, our willingness to show love for strangers is very much relating to how captivated our hearts are by the gospel. You know, if our hearts are captivated by the gospel, we're more likely to do these things. We're more likely to push back against cultural norms. We're more, less likely to be influenced by them. Because if we remain heavily influenced by our culture, we'll just turn our backs on hospitality. You know, we'll retreat into our individual silos. You know, we'll just cut adrift from other people. We'll, be, uh, we'll cling to our individual identity. We'll be grasping and fearful about our needs. We'll only let a select few into our world. And when we do that, I think we slam the door shut in a rupture full of life. You know, a life rooted in Christ, a life rooted in community, and a life rooted in love. We let go of it, shut the door on it. You know, but Jesus solves it for us. He solves that issue for us. He's offered his love and acceptance in a scale that's even hard to imagine. You know, so we have to try and do the same. And if we're able to use that power of hospitality, it opens the door for people to receive the saving, saving grace of Jesus. That's what attracts them in. That's what will make it attractive. And Jesus tells us, if you do that, the reward is great. It's the very end of the passage. He says, you will be repaid at the resurrection. You know, you get to spend eternity with the Lord. That's the reward for doing that. So you don't need to seek out validation or reward in this life. Jesus tells us if we're doing that, we're eating scraps. When there's a banquet forthcoming and you're eating scraps. You know, so I would just encourage you to put your hope in him and, and try and love others boldly. And that, that's the message for me. I hope it's a message for you. So I'm going to close with prayer in a moment. But before uh, we do that, you know, we just invite you to come up during worship to show your faith and show your hope in Jesus. You know, and as you take the bread and as you take from the cup, just to really remember who he is, you know, the hospitality you've been showing. That Jesus has took to the cross as the ultimate act of love for strangers. He did not know you. Yeah, he was willing to go to his death. It's amazing when you think about it. So we've been showing the purest form of hospitality. It's the ultimate act of love for strangers. If you're not a Christian, then I would invite you to come up and accept that hospitality, accept that invitation. It's there. It's there waiting for you. And just finally, you know, if you feel you want to respond in prayer, I'll be down the back of the room, I think, with somebody, not sure. Pauline, Pauline and I will be down the back of the room. Uh, so if God's leading you to respond in somewhere, uh, some way, don't sit with the feeling. I would encourage you to take action in response to that. Okay? So let's close with prayer. So, Father, we thank you for your word and your faithfulness, that you have shown us all mercy and grace, that even in the midst of our failures and shortcomings, you have remained resolute in your love for us. 
Father, we'd ask that in view of your mercy, each and every one of us would be led to serve sacrificially. May we never be detracted from offering service to others as a consequence of our ego, our pride and self-interest. May humility be the cornerstone which underpins our service to others. Father, I pray that you would use our individual and collective gifts to serve others and show true hospitality to all who cross our path. May our affection for others be authentic and not self-serving. May our love for others be sincere and reflect a love shown to us by the Lord Jesus Christ. I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.